Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are now on NPR One. Engineer man, play me a memory. Riding on the city of New Orleans, Illinois Central, Monday morning rail. Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders, three conductors, twenty-five sacks of men. Man, that's good, but I need something a little more up-tempo. You know, I like it, but uh, I'm still not there. I need a little more chooka chooka choo choo. I feel you, Ozzy Osbourne. I feel you. That 1980 track. Ranked ninth greatest metal song of all time by VH1, was clearly Mr. Osborne lamenting the decrepitude of Amtrak. Broken promises, consistent red ink, disdainful, reluctant stopgap funding from Congress that barely staves off insolvency year after year after year. Is this any way to run America's National Railroad Passenger Corp? Maybe it's not too late to learn how to love and forget how to hate. So let's go off the rails on Amtrak with my guests. First, Stevie Tepke, a senior consultant who very frequently braves the Northeast Corridor. How are you, Stevie? Great, Robin. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. And John Culbertson, a veteran insurance industry executive who put himself through college as an attendant on Amtrak. Hi, Robin. Thank you for joining us. What was that like, John, just at the very outset before I go full-bore cynicism on everybody? One of my favorite jobs ever. Really? Yeah. Um, I, I I worked out of Chicago, wherever they, Amtrak went, and all my passengers pretty much were on vacation. And so uh, I had a great time. When was this? Oh, this was in the 1980s. In the early 80s? In the early 80s, yeah. Uh, so what was the general understanding then? This was a desirable job for someone in college? This was a great job. In uh, I could earn $800 in six days plus $300 in tips in the early 1980s. Were you mindful of the fact that this was kind of like a money-losing boondoggle or there was still this romanticism to it? I say this as, you know, as a fifth grader. Our teacher, Mr. Pakula, took us on the Lady Liberty trip from Miami to New York, and it was beautiful. There was a second story on Amtrak. You woke up in the morning. Uh, they made you blueberry pancakes. Um, I'd seen fall colors for the first time, somebody growing up in Miami. And then as, a, as an older person, when I went up north for college and everything, I, I appreciated how neglected and decrepit and chronically uh, late and um, you know beaten up and underinvested Amtrak was. When did that dawn on you? Uh, only as an adult with children, when I, when time began to matter a little more, but uh, for when I, when I was um, a college student, I liked you know the pace worked well for me. 
And Stevie, so you uh, you, you were obviously uh, at huge firms, traveling a lot in the Northeast Corridor. We're based here out of Richmond, mm-hmm. um, which uh, for a while had a lot of JetBlue flights going up north, but yes, then they pulled did. back and the airport was hit bad during the Great Recession. And it turns out that our main Amtrak station here, the Staples Mill Station, is the busiest one in the state of Virginia. And you're no stranger to that station. I am not. Uh, whenever given the choice, I will get on an Amtrak to go to New York if my schedule will allow. Um, it's not quite the romantic train ride I imagined it might have once been when I was younger, but it has its own Brand of efficiency for me as a consultant, I can get on the train, pull up my laptop almost the second I'm on there, and work. And, you know, for me, um, that's that's billable time. So time quite literally is money in this instance. Um, and so to be able to plug in and, and work is so nice in a way that um, – Really, the hassle and the hustle and bustle of trying to get to the airport, get through security, you know, up and down, and and still, still no guarantee, by the way, that you land on time, um, just doesn't allow me uh, the same working time. So I'm I'm a huge fan. But it's pretty it's pretty apples to oranges, right? The flight from Richmond uh, Airport to LaGuardia takes about an hour and ten minutes. Mm-hmm. The train, fully loaded, right from Central Virginia to New York Penn Station take something on the order of seven plus hours. Mm-hmm. And in fact, they shut it down in D.C., I, I believe, because CSX has right of way or I have to switch the stations. It's it's I mean, there's a huge price difference mm-hmm. at times, but it's also a, a arguably a big waste of time. Right. And depending on when you go and also you're assuming that your flight's on time every time. Right. But by the time you figure uh, getting into the city with your cab ride, getting through security, getting to the airport, you know, I figure, yes, I, I save a little bit of time on a plane, but again, the amount of collective time that I'm not able to bill and work, I definitely lose a lot of travel time. Um, now, look, if I've got to be somewhere and I've got to be in and out for a meeting, no question. I mean, I, you've got to go with, with the plane every time. But if I've got to go up and I have I have wiggle room to get up there, I find it to be far less stressful. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a it, – well, here's the real truth, actually. For the longest time, especially before uh, Amtrak started, you know, uh, running Wi-Fi, I – I tended to think of it as my uh, work sensory deprivation chamber Oh, <laughs> because no one could reach me, right? I'd get on. I wouldn't have my internet access. I wouldn't have email. Even now, honestly, sometimes when I do have the connectivity, I tell people I don't. <laughs> they might be doing you a favor by having a half-assed Wi-Fi. People uh-huh. lament the Wi-Fi connection no, on that true. more than anything. When I right? get on and it's actually working, I think, oh <clears throat> man, because I do some. You know, I get to to catch up on some of that that reading and some of my own development that gets so neglected. I've done some of my best writing, some of my best um, content building for clients. It's truly a sensory deprivation chamber of sorts where I'm I am forced to get offline and do the stuff that takes a lot of concentration. Um, so if, you know, truth be told, efficiency and all of that sounds very good, but I love it because I get a little bit of headspace and get some time. Um, and I'm, I mean, what 
what else am I going to do? I'm Can't kind you of do forced. that by sitting on a hill and looking at a, at a lake? <laughs> I mean, do you have to go on a train where they don't clean the bathrooms and the, the station is hard to get in and out? I'm just being devil's advocate here. It's a fair question. Yes, you would think in theory. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't have the discipline to sometimes carve out that space. So uh, so this is, is that forced sort of reprieve from work. Um, and, I, and I don't have to feel guilty about it, right? What am I going to do? I've got to get from point A to point B. And uh, so it's it is a it's a nice thing, and I know a lot of my colleagues who also uh, travel by rail do it for that same reason. You know, in a footnote on that station, uh, the Staples Mill station, um, which is now the busiest in Virginia, it's so uh, underinvested in. You can argue that I can tell you from the horse's mouth. I have a friend who is a TV producer here locally who gets a call a couple Thanksgivings ago from the manager of the station saying. Can you please tell people not to park here? Uh, because one of the embarrassing bottlenecks is you can't leave the station. On a Friday, uh, you know, when the train comes in from D.C. and everybody's rushing to get home, it literally once took me 25 minutes to get out of the parking lot. And if they that. can't do that basic blocking and tackling. And by the way, this is indicative. There used to be a, a marvelous train station here in Richmond, which is now the Science Museum. It's kind of like they say about New York Penn Station. Uh, you know, before the atrocity they committed in knocking it down in the 1960s, you used to feel like a king mm. coming to New York on, on a train. And now you feel like a rat coming to the <laughs> Penn Station. And the same can be argued. I think it's indicative of a general neglect or um, we give we give passenger travel in this country, interstate passenger travel, John, uh, the short shrift. Yeah, I think so. And uh, yeah, passengers sometimes feel it at the end. Uh, but in the middle of the of the trip, you're, 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 it's different time. Uh, you can do different things. You can uh, you you're a lot more comfortable than being inside a Embraer jet for uh, an hour. Where where's your indignation, people? I mean, I'm looking at an article that Quartz put out this week. Japan. Here's a country that's been mired in, um, let's say, a uh, what uh, a weak economy for the better part of 20 years. They have a Landmark 374 mile per hour bullet train, a magnetic levitation train that Quartz says that if you planted this in the United States, you could get from Montreal to New York in an hour. You could get from Boston to Washington in an hour and 13 minutes. From Washington to Chicago, John, your old haunt, two hours and 24 minutes. From Seattle to LA, three hours and 40 minutes. And from New York to Miami, get this. Time on the Japanese maglev would take three hours and 43 minutes. That is a complete game changer. And I read that and I weep um, because there's this argument out there, Stevie, that, you know, this is not a, a train travel country. You don't have the population density. Culturally, this is everybody is a master of their own domain with their car. Gasoline has been cheap. But don't you wonder sometimes, gosh, if you could get to D.C. in 20 minutes from here, if you could get to New York in a half an hour? Oh, it, it would be a game changer. Like you said, from a, a work connectivity uh, perspective, the ability to get from one city to another, what that opens up for, for people, for businesses. Um, and I you know, and I wonder, too, um, if maybe some of the attitudes about rail travel might change um, with y, uh, Generation Y entering the workforce and, and having a much more open um, 
an open mind about the the sharing economy that um, I think what you've said is true. In the past, we have been very much about our cars, our automobile, our independence, and wanting the control of getting ourselves from point A to point B on our schedules. But I see something very different with a lot of the young people that I work with. Ugh, and I hear those words coming out of my mouth. It pains me to say, say that. The millennials, millennials <laughs> the want. Millennials, the millennials. Uh, we need a millennial um, gong on this show. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I think, um, I, you know, I think um, they're much – they're much more open to um, to things that I, I don't think some of us would have been um, at their age. And this idea of why why even own a car in some cases. I work with several people that don't even own a car when I can bike, when I can Uber, when I can Lyft. Sure. Um, and to me, you know, uh, rail falls right into that thinking. And yet, and yet, no one is exactly going to the steps of Capitol Hill with pitchforks saying, you know, end this madness, fund Amtrak for good. We know that, um, you know, throwing a couple of billion dollars every year at stopgap funding is one thing. When the Chinese throw in, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars at building their high-speed train system, and obviously, there's a whole different thing going on in China, John, with maybe bubble building, infrastructure for infrastructure's sake. But I even lament that, gosh, if you could have a bubble in this country, I mean, we had we had a, a long-forgotten telco bubble in the late 90s, right. which I covered, where we spent trillions of dollars on fiber optic cables that we never used. And companies went bankrupt left and right between 2000 and 2002. But there was recovery to that infrastructure. I mean, uh, uh, stronger hands took control of it and then rebuilt it out. And it wasn't just all a paper loss. And I, I similarly lament why we can't have something like a railroad, a passenger railroad bubble in this country. We certainly had a, um, a commodity railroad bubble in the late 1900s, and that led to the robber barons doing what they did and the trust busters. What is it about uh, train travel and what you know that kind of yeah, I don't know. It, it doesn't light the animal spirits of private investors. Well, I think one of the problems is that it depends upon these enormous companies, these rail companies. Uh, uh, unlike in Europe, uh, uh, Amtrak shares the space with freight rail. Hmm. And so freights run slowly. Um, the bullet trains uh, two or three times faster than a, a typical freight. And so... Uh, it's hard to mix the two in the same space. You can uh, uh, airplanes can do that very easily. You just assign a different altitude. But uh, the, the 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 tracks themselves are either engineered for slow or fast, but rarely both at the same time. So let me understand this. So when we when the conductor comes on somewhere, I don't know, around Delaware or Baltimore or something, and says we have to slow down, or you think the train's going, the Amtrak's going at a snail's pace, this is out of deference to what ostensibly CSX. CSX and the fact that that, uh, that rail line that you're standing on at that moment was likely laid 150 years ago with all the curves and the technology that worked 150 years ago. Um, so uh, it's, a tough, it's a tough gig to try to uh, straighten that um, uh, to run faster trains. The faster trains in Europe or Japan, they run in straight lines. Uh, our trains in the Northeast and elsewhere um, suffer from 150-year-old curves. Bloomberg made some headlines in 2011 when people were uh, really excited coming out of the financial crisis about shovel-ready projects and, you know, Metroliner Joe Biden and Obama going around the country talking about the the promise of high-speed rail and you had the cost of borrowing in this country plummeting. I mean, it was a great time to issue infrastructure bonds. But the then CEO of CSX Corp., which was um, 
this behemoth uh, of, of conglomerated uh, rail lines in the country that's a vestige of the 19th century. He told Bloomberg uh, News, uh, CSX can't be a part of President Obama's rail vision because passenger trains don't make money and high-speed trains don't belong on freight tracks. He says, I'm a corporation. I exist to make money, okay? You can make money hauling passengers. You can't make money hauling passengers. So why would I want to do that? That wouldn't be fair to my shareholders. CSX is the third largest major freight railroad in the U.S. by revenue. John, why are we deferring so much to CSX? Well, we we, we built some rules that say if there's a, a passenger train on CSX track, it's got to run ahead of his coal trains. And so... Uh, that's good for me as the passenger, but the rule says I have, uh, I'm, I'm going to end up slowing down uh, the other 95% of the way that this uh, CEO makes his money. And so uh, we're stuck with some uh, dreadful rules for, for uh, the, the... But why are we sharing that underlying infrastructure? I'm not playing coy here. I don't understand. Isn't there an eminent domain issue? I mean, if you want to build an expressway or a freeway, the government will come in and buy out or make a fair offer to private property owners. Well, I, I think from a public policy standpoint, uh, the la when we were doing that in the 1950s and 60s, there was a lot of pro uh, social social problems when we bulldozed whole neighborhoods to, to develop the uh, Eisenhower um, highway network. Um, and so I, I don't think there's a lot of uh, political will to uh, deal with that problem. So whose neighborhood do you want to bulldoze? Do we necessarily have to bulldoze neighborhoods? Is it not about expanding right of way? Uh, what, what do you have to do, knowing the train infrastructure the way you do, John? Um, how far or close do you have to be from these CSX rails to not rock the boat effectively? As long as they're separated by five or six feet, uh, but dedicated, you're okay. That's the way it runs in Europe. Hmm. Now, Stevie, you talk about the mixing bowl here in Northern Virginia. Mm -hmm. We, You and I have a lot of business that draws us up to D.C. Mm -hmm. And you could do a couple of things. And we know a lot of people here in Central Virginia and Charlottesville who have the same issue that if you leave your house at 5 in the morning or 4.30 in the morning, you could ostensibly get to Northern Virginia and D.C. by an hour, you know, within an hour and 45 sure. minutes. If you leave any time later than that, you're stuck in Good this three-, four-hour <laughs> morass. And whenever you go up to Northern Virginia, the Beltway and the Mixing Bowl, and I don't even know what they call it up there by Lorton and this and that, <laughs> but it's just this, It's everything is at a standstill. Why are we even investing in that infrastructure anymore? Why are we not saying that, look, I could put this $200 million into the highway or I could reinforce the track that passengers use? Mm -hmm. Well, look, I'm, I'm certainly not going to uh, try to speak for uh, why it is that uh, – public officials might not want to get behind that. But um, I have to imagine that there is, is a lot at stake politically there. Um, but to go back to your, your question earlier, you'd asked about, um, you know, why is there not even demand? Um, people have said, you know, Americans aren't but wait, hold people, on. We do see right? demand. We see consistent ridership increases since 9-11. Right. I mean, in the immediate period after 9-11, when people realized right. that, that the airport experience was going to be a lot slower, mm -hmm. a lot more held up, a lot more bottlenecked, they turned to trains en masse. Mm -hmm. And now even, you know, Staples Mill, for example, is another mm -hmm. instance of the fact mm -hmm. that you have a growing population here, people who want to flee northern Virginia and become 
exurban right. people, as it were, but really cannot depend right. on that infrastructure. Well, and I think that's, that's where I was going to go with this is that I think maybe it is true for parts of the country that there would not or is not, has not been a demand. But I think when you look in very, very densely populated areas like D.C., certainly like the like the North uh, Northeast Corridor, where they have seen this incredible increase in ridership, um, I think that there there is a lot of demand. Um, and I, you know, I, I suppose it's a it's a maybe it's a if you build it, they will come. But I, I think you would see. Um, you would see the landscape change dramatically um, for Northern Virginia and further into Virginia if people had the option for high-speed rail between, say, a city like Richmond and D.C. Well, is there there an intractable federalism problem here, John, in that you need congressional authorization and you need to make all of these uh, people in the House and in the Senate happy with uh, robust uh, uh, funding of Amtrak? And that means funding vacation lines that are never going to be profitable in Oregon to wherever or in the Midwest or in the South. There's apparently this whole set of tracks uh, on the Gulf Coast that has not been repaired since Katrina in 2005. And it just shows you that things are a hodgepodge. You know, if you go up to New York and Connecticut, those are relatively robust passenger rail systems because the state has control, because the tax bases are certain. Um, You're a hedge fund person in Connecticut or Darien, Connecticut. Darn it, you're going to get to Grand Central Station because you have to, and you're going to pay upward of $300 a month. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other people in New Jersey transit with varying levels of decrepitude. But when you bring in kind of federal, you know, U.S. authorization of Amtrak and saying it's one thing to authorize the Northeast Corridor, which could ostensibly be self-sufficient on its own. It's another thing to have to at the same time say that, yeah, I want that Route 66 corridor working or I want your, you know, L.A., San Francisco, whatever lines. I mean – Across the country, uh, the net result is you you have uh, the Northeast Corridor people subsidizing the leisure riders, John. Well, yeah, I, I think the fact that Amtrak is one brand nationwide, but it means so many different things. It means a, the, 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 the relatively fast Northeast Corridor. That's one thing. And then there are all these uh, slow-moving trains uh, f- uh, in the Midwest and, and other places. And uh, th- I think that hurts. Uh, it would be so much more straightforward if we saw more experimentation, private um, sort of point-to-point service. And uh, uh, I'd lo- I'd, I would like to see more of that uh, instead of just letting the, the same national operator try everything. Uh, why not have, um, say, entrepreneurs who want a uh, fast rail between Chicago and Milwaukee? Or, you know, just, uh, because there's the a network. chicken or egg dilemma. I think that these entrepreneurs are not going to shell out for the expensive, the heavy lifting stuff. It's like the you know the Eisenhower Interstate Highway system is a is a public good that then truckers and bus lines and everything can then run businesses on. How do you take for granted uh, you know the fact that there isn't a, a robust public good to start a train startup on? You've had you know various train startups. I I know one that tried to go from. I don't know, New York City to Atlantic City that failed. Uh, there's, um, you know, uh, the things that are branded so-and-so that never seem to last within states like Florida because they have to abide by the same rules. They have to defer to the commercial carriers like CSX. What is the game changer here? I mean, what what induces private investors to come out and say, all right, we're ready to invest? Well, I, I think uh, population density is one. Uh, in special cases, and I think high oil prices is another. Talk to me about that. Well, the the cost per 
uh, passenger mile of a train uh, um, has very little to do with the cost of fuel. It has a lot to do with your air, uh, airfare. So in, in a world of high uh, but why prices. Why is that, John? The locomotives are uh, either drawing electricity uh, off the, the, the net or uh, uh, burning oil, um, and they're extremely efficient. Uh, compared to planes. And so, so there's no variability in if you pack a train or if it's completely yeah. packed. It's not going to... And, uh, you know, like uh, the CSX can, um, they say they can haul one ton of coal for a, a mm. 600 miles for about a gallon of uh, gas. I mean, it's ridiculous. And there's no way a, a, a United Airlines is anywhere close to that. Right. So um, high high. Uh, high uh, High prices for oil high, would mean high airfare prices. Um, I wouldn't expect that the, um, the, the price to ship uh, to move people on Amtrak would move much, and that would be an impetus. We saw, though, in the decade, uh, in, the, in the aughts, uh, oil prices go from something like $12 a barrel up to $140 a barrel, and that certainly, that in combination with the uh, economic decline had more people proportionally taking uh, train service. But it doesn't seem to result in the typical um, business calculus of, okay, a company suddenly sees more cash flow. It increases its capital expenditures. We did see, Stevie, the Acela train, mm-hmm. which uh, looks very nice in, 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 in Amtrak, uh, in the Amtrak in context the Amtrak on the outside. <laughs> but by its builders, I think some of the, the French engineers that were consulted to build it, they, they deride it as what El Cochon, the hog. It's just in this you know, fat American sense. We put an enormous thing um, on uh, an undercarriage that absolutely was not able to crack it. It was plagued several years ago by these fractures. It was taken offline. I will say, and, and you'll probably agree, on the rare occasion that you get to take the Acela, yes. and it's on time, and it's clean, and the Wi-Fi works, you can almost taste this essence of Wow, train travel can be pleasant in this country. So close, so close, but so far yeah, away. But so far away, and uh, and you're right. I don't get to take it nearly as as often. Well, it's as expensive, I would like. and it's expensive. Um, and you know, and for for that matter too, um, we have not talked about the the cost of ridership, even for the less glamorous traditional Amtrak. But that is a complaint I hear frequently. I was I was telling John when I got in here, my. Uh, one of the things we do is an exercise um, uh, and uh, in innovation with my firm when we work with clients is this idea of reinventing Amtrak. And people get so excited about it. They love the idea of train travel. And when um, we get done with the exercise and we say, well, you know, do you take the train? Why would you take the train? One of the things that comes up, as you would guess, is, well, it's not reliable enough. Mm. You know, I don't, I can't trust for it to be on time. So therefore, I can't take it to D.C. for my meetings. But the second thing is people say, it's still not cheap to ride, too. You know, they, they think because of the inconvenience or the unreliability that perhaps there should be a bit of a discounted factor, right? And, and doesn't that lead to a vicious cycle, right? right. Amtrak can't collect the fares that it does to be self-sufficient right. and self-funded. Uh, according to the National Journal, which had a great expose this week, Why Can't America Have Great Trains? I urge you to read it. I'll post it up on our website. Um, the House of Representatives last month agreed to fund Amtrak for the next four years at a rate of $1.4 billion per year. Meanwhile, the Chinese government will be spending $128 billion this year on rail. Uh, to give you an idea about ridership, it's increased by roughly 50% on Amtrak in the past 15 years, and the Northeast Corridor now has ridership at an all-time high. 
Amtrak also accounts for 77% of all rail and air travel between D.C. and New York, up from just 37% when it launched the Acela train in 2000. I mean, these numbers, okay, I'm, I'm playing naive here. They should suggest something to Congress that there's increasingly maybe a unanimity behind train travel. Or, John, is this just a northeastern thing? No, I don't think it is. Uh, you know, if you look at the spend in China, uh, the uh, the spend is going to these very, very long distance uh, um, uh, uh, rail sets. Um, so, uh, no, I don't think. But it's I'm just saying, a, is this a, are we are we cherry picking the great example, the densely traveled, you know, willingness to pay Northeast Corridor line? I, I think I think that's too often um, cited. Partly because the Northeast Corridor serves Washington D.C. and the House of Representatives, but uh, you know I think there are lots of people who would like better service in the Middle West, even at 55 miles an hour uh, in average train speed. I can't drive 55, man. <laughs> Stevie, I know you're young. That's a uh, that's Sammy Hagar. He was the other frontman from Van Halen when he went off on his own and he did that song. I love that you think I'm as young as I am. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, again, so I want to say this is this is a this is almost a meaning of life question, uh, John. Um, you know, and I, I have a, you know I, I didn't bring think tank people on this. We didn't bring Brookings Institute or Cato Institute people. But these are people, you know, in the spirit of full disclosure, darn it, these are people who have everyday experience with the Amtrak, who know this story longitudinally, who um, can speak kind of a, from a Vox Populi perspective, but also from a management consultant perspective. I mean, you have McKinsey brains here in John. Um, is this is this a chicken or egg problem that if we broke off and cherry pick the Northeast Corridor line, which has huge ridership gains, enormous demand, pricing power, that the rest of the system would automatically go bankrupt and ergo all these congressmen in Iowa and Illinois and Oregon cry bloody murder? I think that's exactly what would happen. That um, that uh, if they broke it into pieces, the Northeast Corridor would survive. It would um, it uh, we the the service might even improve. Um, but then the other the, the 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 rest of the Amtrak system would be found to be unprofitable and not not politically saleable. It occupies this unusual space of you know is it interstate commerce, interstate yeah. transportation, intrastate transportation. You see cooperation between states like Connecticut and New York when something as important systemically as Grand Central Station is involved or Penn Station uh, in New York, New Jersey, and the Port Authority. You almost have to – I know this is getting inside baseball, inside civics, Stevie. You almost have to get this kind of confederation of involved states mm -hmm. to – to back together an enormous uh, a train system. And you can't do that when you have governors, for example, who came in on the Tea Party, uh, you know, Rick Scott in Florida, who told the Obama administration to take his high-speed money back, darn it. I don't yeah, need it. I right. don't want that pork barrel spending. Um, you have people opting out. I don't know where to go with that. Where is your indignation, <laughs> Stevie Tepke? I'm sorry, like, but yes, well said. No, I don't but know just to, just to, to give that. you an idea, right? So Bob, Bob yep. McDonald, our, our very mm -hmm. own you know, governor here who was ousted, who was disgraced, uh, he ceded ways to um, Terry McAuliffe now, who is a big backer mm -hmm. of train travel and believes in you know, building uh, Virginia and, and, and central Virginia, especially as a, as a terminus of high-speed travel. But you don't get any sort of continuity. I don't understand. You know, you are 
uh, uh, vox populi. You are a taxpayer here. You are a person who uses this, who lives incidentally and works just a few blocks mm-hmm. from a gorgeous historic train station, Main Street Station, that's that's really ceremonial. Mm-hmm. They threw tens of millions of dollars here in Richmond into renovating this thing, into somewhat floodproofing it, but only a handful of trains go in and out of it every day. Yeah, not not terribly functional. I can't help but um, wonder if some of this is about expectations too. So you ask, where where is our indignation? Um, I, you know, I don't know anything different. Um, and I don't have, as sad as I am to say, as much as I would love to see high-speed rail between Richmond and D.C., to see people taking more rail for it to be uh, more efficient, more, more affordable, all of those things, um, I just have very, uh, very low expectations. It sounds like a learned helplessness to me. <laughs> I suppose. Can we maybe get all psychological I, with I this? I suppose maybe it is. Um, anything else that they would that they would do to boost uh, to boost the effectiveness of of, of the rail uh, the rail system would be such a bonus, but probably not an expectation. You know, do, do you think about rail travel when you're delayed on um, the on an, uh, an air flight? I have had an occasional instance where I, I had that moment, right? Did, did I did I take the train or did I fly when I got stuck, right? And I'm like, oh, just would have been easier. But uh, but yeah, I mean, not not typically. No, there is this this uh, conspiracy theory that uh, Richard Nixon, when he consolidated uh, these money losing passenger units of, uh, of of the various railroad services, that ultimately many of them did go bankrupt. John, uh, in the early 70s, that was with an implicit wink to the industry that this was not made to last, that he structured Amtrak in a way that it would be starved of funding, that it would effectively fall by the wayside. And the idea being that private operators in the mid-70s would have picked up the assets for pennies on the dollar, and it just would have you know, sowed the seeds of its own demise. But that's well, not the case 40-plus years later. Mm-hmm. Well, it goes through so many congressional districts as a national um, network. Um, uh, and so at very, very low density, you know, there are lots of, uh, there are lots, of, lots of constituencies that would never want to lose their once a day, each way, um, uh, Amtrak arrival. What do we need, like a constitutional amendment to break this logjam? Wait, John, I, I think we got to get a constitutional scholar or something in here. I think I think I've tapped these guys. No, just <laughs> no. I mean, I I really don't get it. I'm I'm trying to you know have this as an open ended conversation from three people who seem to want to to want mm-hmm. to want to love train travel in this mm-hmm. country. And Stevie, in spite of it, you give you give this a long leash. You try to make the best of a not great situation, and you think of it as a you know a decompression chamber and a digital <laughs> detox, but. Right. Uh, at the same time, you told me you just went on this lovely vacation with yes. your husband to Spain. And, and tell us about the train experience there. It was fantastic. We got from city to city effortlessly, inexpensively, and on time, I mean, to the minute, um, on their their rail system. And it was a delightful experience. Was it high-speed rail? It was high-speed rail. So we, How we fast took... did it feel? I mean, were you like blazing by compared no, to the Acela. It, uh, well, so it, it felt incredibly smooth. So I had no idea until my husband sort of poked me and looked up, uh, you know, pointed me in the direction of just how fast we were going. And, it, and I, uh, I guarantee you, well, there was a clock never, up there. There was a, a clock that clock. actually showed uh, in kilometers how fast we were going. And I, I guarantee you, we've never I've never been on anything nearly approaching that in the U.S. But it was truly, truly effortless. But this is, this is the sad thing. The thing that um, impressed us 
us and shocked us the most was just the timeliness of it. And and when I, you know, we took a step back to think, we're like, what a sad thing. You shouldn't have to be impressed with trains that run on schedule, but it just blew our minds. <laughs> And this is an interesting factoid. You're talking about Spain, a country that was uh, an epicenter of European financial distress Mm -hmm. that until recently had 25% unemployment that's broke uh, without the backing of the EU and the other countries like Germany and France. And yet it is important enough to them uh, to have train travel for the trains to run on time. Absolutely. That they don't let things like this slip up. Right. Absolutely. Um, and it, it was you were saying earlier about getting a glimmer of what could be. Um, I have had wonderfully low expectations when I take the Amtrak, but when you get a taste of that um, in a, in a place like Europe that is suffering economically, so you think, well, if they can pull this off, why in the world can't we? Full disclosure: I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to. Amtrak enthusiasts and non-apologists and people who are impossible to kind of rile up here, Stevie Tepke and John Culbertson, people who've had huge experiences with Amtrak over its uh, tortured 45 years of existence. Is that right? 45 years. Yeah, 1971. Mm-hmm. You know, John, you, you, you see all these glowing articles written about China, and obviously China is building out these, these uh, trains and building out this infrastructure in a way that kind of just keeps people employed. It's not necessarily for for uh, uh, public work savviness. Uh, but I, I was told from people who took the Pudong train, I believe in Shanghai, uh, up till recently the fastest train in the world, that the attendants there love to go up to Americans and say, what do you think about this? How does this make you feel? To kind of rub it in <laughs> as a point of national pride. And it reminds me almost of, you know, an arms race or space race in the 1960s. Well, you know, I used to get that when I worked on, on board. Uh, so when my European customers would take the train with me, they would look at the state of things and, and they'd you know, say, they, like, Alice Claire du Commissar. No, <laughs> <laughs> they, 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 they had a sustained disbelief at um, how half assed we were. How half assed, because they're here for vacation. You know, they're expecting uh, something wonderful in America and the train service, and they have every European expectation of timeliness, cleanliness, frequency, and we deliver very, very little of that. And uh, uh, many of them were very, very surprised, could not believe America has left its uh, network uh, uh, in the state of, that it was. And also the Japanese like to boast, you know, in a, in a very Japanese way, that um, their trains did not suffer failures during the huge Fukushima uh, uh, earthquake, uh, the enormous uh, Sendai earthquake of early 2011, that this is actually a very labor and capital intensive line of work. They have people with lanterns. Hundreds of people every night that manually inspect the maglev tracks for debris. Uh, it's a point of national pride over there. And they didn't want to sit around. Even with their uh, economy in stagnation for several years, they didn't want to cede this to China and, and say China is ahead of us. China, even though China's economy is now bigger than Japan's, there is this uh, uh, a space race kind of uh, – you know, mission to the moon aspect that other countries espouse. And here in the United States, I got to tell you, Stevie, there are times when I'm on it, you know, and I see fellow journalists on it, and they're more ticked off about the Wi-Fi not working than the conductor coming on and saying, we need to slow down the train because we have track heat issues in the middle (laughs) of summer and the track expands. It's always amazing to me that 
in this country, we would not take virtual infrastructure for granted. But actual infrastructure, you know what? It's just the way of the world. The mixing bowl stinks. It's impossible to drive on the Jersey Turnpike at times. You go outside of Atlanta, the I-385, I mean, you know this well. Mm -hmm. And we just keep throwing money. We authorize um, transportation spending ad nauseum, but no one is willing to say, well, what about this alternative? What about deleveraging? What about taking people off the highways and putting them on the trains? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you uh, you might be giving most Americans more credit than they deserve that they actually spend time thinking <laughs> about that and thinking about the options. Um, no, it's... they do. When they're stuck on the road and they see the stats at the end of the year that you spent effectively you know, an eighth of your life on the road, not with your children, uh, not dining with your loved ones, it makes you wonder. Yeah. Oh, it makes you wonder. But what I hear people do is complain and then, of course, you know, look to D.C. and start to play the blame game. Um, you know, I've not heard a lot of uh, thoughtful um, discourse about what the alternatives might be. Um, and again, I, I can't help but wonder if this doesn't go back to just people don't see this as a viable alternative. So there's not any real conversation or real hope that this could be um, a meaningful a, a meaningful option in any way. What do you think, John? It's a tough putt. I think that the the uh, people who from the Northeast and in, in, in certain locations like Chicago, where that you take the Metra, five hundred they have a five hundred mile network of passenger rail for commuters. People love it. it um, and uh, it, it generates expectation. And maybe the game is to try to build out from that. I think clearly in the Northeast, there is uh, there's a there are many people who, um, could could imagine a better better service um, between uh, New York or um, or between San Francisco and L.A. You could imagine something better if you're stuck in your car, and maybe the game is to try to um, you know focus on those little on, on those those islands. Hmm. You know, Amtrak itself estimates that to retrofit fully, and Amtrak is notoriously bad at estimates and promises. Uh, the Northeast Corridor with a true bullet train type infrastructure would call for something on the order of $151 billion. $151 billion in the grand scheme of things. I mean, uh, look at the money that we spent on TARP, on bailing out the financial services system. And there was a payback on that, yes, with interest, John, I understand. Uh, but was there a societal payback? I mean, ultimately, after that bailout was made, uh, these companies were free to go back and issue dividends back to shareholders. It wasn't a, a true return on investment to society. Meanwhile, I give you that $151 billion figure. Do you guys know what the market cap of Facebook is? I do not. No. $230 billion. So we value you know, Facebook more than what kind of the track retro build would be. And again, I think this comes back to the problem that what would be the structure potentially for private investors? I mean, would the government have to come out there and say, we will build the foundation, the infrastructure, effectively the Eisenhower interstate um, highway system, and then go forth and uh, uh, be entrepreneurs, multiply, build private train systems. I think that's viable. And I, I'd sure like the government to tell us more about how much it costs to maintain and build the, the existing uh, interstate system. I've seen, I've heard about stretches of uh, interstate that would approach a billion a mile in, in, in the worst case. And so, the cost overruns are pretty terrible. I mean, that's why Amtrak is such a popular whipping boy for 
uh, libertarians and conservatives. You have Republican John Micah of Florida, who's a longtime Amtrak skeptic. He told the National Journal that he effectively called this, and, and in many cases it's right, Soviet-style and third-world passenger service. You know, labor costs are out of whack. A 2009 report by the Amtrak Office of the Inspector General found that the company's infrastructure workers were 2.3 times more expensive annually than their European counterparts. Uh, there's a lot of room for bloat. There's a lot. I mean, it's a very unionized operation, as you remember, John. Um, it's just one of those things where I, I wonder, and, and this is the, the you know where my idealism kind of wanes, that if it's just too messy to save, it's too too unwieldy to rescue, that. Uh, but it's also too important to let fail. So it's stuck in this purgatory that it's never going to fully, you know, the creative destruction is not going to happen. Well, if it was broken apart and uh, private enterprise took pieces, and then they could possibly renegotiate the labor rates, which are a considerable portion of the total Amtrak spend, that might be a model. Uh, Great Britain did that uh, for its national network. It, it broke it into pieces and then allowed... Um, private enterprise to bid on the pieces. Um, you know, you, it's conceivable you could do that with, with Amtrak. Um, um, the value of, say, Chicago to LA, that route, is, bears no resemblance to the Northeast Corner. Um, but uh, a breaking apart might be a way to save at least pieces of it. Stevie, airlines, after uh, a huge period of uh, near-death experience following 9-11, have really gotten their groove back. Fuel prices have fallen. Uh, there were six or seven major carriers, and now they've consolidated down to three. It's really kind of United Continental, U.S. Air American, um, Delta Northwest. And there's a lot of pricing power. And a function of this also is they've pulled back on capacity. They've cut the number of flights mm -hmm. and cut the number of hubs and gates. And so this has affected you individually. Like I know out of Central Virginia, you used to have options. You used to have competition. If you needed to fly to New York... You could fly to JFK from Richmond mm -hmm. uh, on JetBlue for like $270 or so. Some, per, some people blanched at this idea of paying $60, $65 for a cab from JFK to Manhattan. But it would save you a lot of time and a lot of money in the grand scheme of things. Um, that there, there seems to be this disconnect right now where you're underserved in terms of plane options and rail options with uh, the, the main station here being packed ticket prices going up. Um, what is the alternative for people? It's not like you could turn to cars. There's there's gridlock up there. It's not like you can beam yourself up to New York. Yeah. Uh, the bus lines, I mean, there isn't an express lane. What breaks this gridlock? So it's a, a great question. I, I don't, I mean, for, for companies that have to get there, you just have to pay the premium. You have to be inconvenienced. Um, you know, the other option is for um, you know, I look at a at a firm like ours, which is not big. We haven't been around for you know, but seven eight years. Um, for us, one of the options has been we look to other cities. We're finding it's much easier for us to um, expand and take our business to cities like Dallas, like Charlotte, um, even Chicago, because we can get flights in and out easily. So at some point, when you know, when the 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 options are no longer feasible or convenient. You have to say, is it worth it? Now that's really, this is not tail wagging dog. This is actually building, you know, right. 
logistics and business decisions around. Absolutely. For us, it 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 very much is. We spent a lot of time, a lot of investment, um, going up into New York the last uh, the last few years, and um, for for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which is the convenience and the cost of getting there. As we've said, this might not be the best market for us, and uh, it did it did cause us was one of the decisions that caused us to look at other markets. Really, yeah. the 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 train, you know, the the kind of the duality versus expensive plane travel very versus very expensive to get to New York. Yes. It is. I mean, a lot of times even with 2 weeks uh notice uh, on mm-hmm. the on the ticket or 2 3 weeks notice you're talking about a 6 $700 flight. Mm-hmm. And until recently you had one choice. Right. <laughs> versus the Amtrak option which if it is on time and including the 1 hour shutdown in DC is a right. 7 hour experience. And by the time you get into Penn Station New York, you know, even with your decompression chamber benefits <laughs> you're kind of spent and that day yeah. has been spent yeah it's a full day of, it's it's a it's a good full day of travel you can't you know you can't go uh, you can't just hop on the train often the same day you need to take meetings it's getting up there in advance so you think about just the the lost productivity time in that sense too it's an option to your point, we can bill and do some interesting things on there, but it still is less than convenient. <laughs> was there pushback from clients when you had to bill through um, air travel, when you had to be there on spur of the moment and had to hop a flight to be there in an hour and 20 minutes? And people are like, what, $700? Yeah. It, no, it's a good question. It's something we're, we're always concerned about as, um, again, as a, as a smaller firm and uh, being in a second-tier city, it's something we have to be mindful of. We never want to upset clients or possibly lose um, a gig that we're bidding on because it looks like it's going to be more expensive for us to get there or harder for us to get there on a moment's notice. Now, thankfully, that's never been um, an issue for us, but it's something we're mindful of. So we are really legitimately, John, saying, and, you, and you've been well-traveled. You've, you've spent time in Chicago and Boston, uh, in the Midwest, that, that this is truly limiting the potential of this city. I mean, you take the counterfactual. If you snapped your fingers and tomorrow there was high-speed dedicated travel between Central Virginia and D.C., New York, suddenly a lot of the people who live in Fredericksburg, who live in the Beltway, would be moving down here you suddenly increase the definition of the Beltway. Oh, and change housing prices here. Um, overnight. Overnight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it's not that far away, uh, uh, D.C. and uh, Baltimore and the rest. Um, so if we could just change our mindset and think um, you know, how, how life could be different with high-speed rail between here and there, yeah, it would be a complete game-changer. And uh, gee, I think about all my, um, uh, so so many of my workmates and uh, friends who try to avoid uh, um, traveling the I nine. Yeah, you have to contort. You have to contort to avoid it. I mean, I know, totally. uh, you know, preschool wise, there are a group of dads who say, you know, I every Sunday night I have to be up in uh, Tyson's Corner. I I I I'm in a you know Northern Virginia. I have a car park there. If you're game and you want to split the petrol, I'll meet you at 345 at this Shell station in Midlothian. And it's a little absurd. I mean, how groggy you are, even if you get there by 530 or so. It, 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 you know, it's, it's, um, it's a kind of a scorched earth thing to have to do when you should be able to take for granted, I think, to get on a train and arrive on time. If, you know, right now it's about two hours and 20 minutes. And a lot of people just avoid the station. Uh, because it's impossible to get in and out of, mm-hmm. and go to the one uh, north of it, right, Ashland. Ashland, yeah. yeah. Um, and and it feels like this is kind of like this this creep. It's always going to happen if you know 
uh, people suddenly get really tired of the mixing bowl and the beltway in Fredericksburg and move south and move south and move south. At some point, there has to be a kind of a critical mass and a tipping point. And I'm just trying to reach for what that is. Do they write their congressman? I mean, up till recently, Richmond had uh, one of the most powerful congressmen in the House and Eric mm-hmm. Canner, and it's not like he went to bat for this horribly overcapacitated train station. Yeah, I wish Amtrak would take a page out of what Metro used to do in Chicago. Every overpass, the Metro train, right? The Metro train. Uh, every overpass that crossed over a congested highway, they had a sign which basically said, "You know, you could be taking the train at this moment while, while you're stuck in traffic." And I think it's at those moments that uh, that Amtrak could build a a, a groundswell. Uh, for development, when you're delayed at LaGuardia, when you are um, stuck in traffic on I-95. Those are the moments. And I think it's a matter of getting people to understand that there is a substitution possible. It's not even in the evoked set right now in in people's minds. And so I I think uh, marketing uh, could do wonders. It's not something Amtrak has excelled at. No, excel that. You get that? You know, what they did try to do last year, and I'm mindful of this as a journalist, they launched an initiative called the Amtrak Writers Residency. The idea was to send, and I'm quoting National Journal here, the idea was to send 24 writers wherever they wanted on a long-distance train where they would basically stare out the window and type on their computers. The program was bashed by conservatives and lightly mocked on the Internet. Yet an astonishing 16,000 people wound up applying. Among the eventual winners were several high-profile media figures, including the writer Jennifer Finney Boylan and the public radio host Marco Werman. Again, it speaks to this love-hate relationship we have with it. Anytime I see my fellow journos on Twitter, I mean, you want to put the hashtag on Amtrak and complain about the person having the chicken Caesar salad in front of you at 8.30 in the morning and stinking up the car, and you want to complain about the passive aggression that you feel in the in the dining car and you know, you, you just want to sh- shake your fist at the earth. And Amtrak, I think, in the, you know, the most ambitious marketing thing it did until recently was like, well, we can't beat them. Let's try to get them to join us. Maybe we can uh, bring them down several notches by giving them free rides. Uh, you know, I, I just don't know if, if marketing can cover up these kind of intractable infrastructure problems. Well, there are moments that are problems, but there's a romance about it that is unique, I think, to transportation. And uh, I think writers can write about that. Um, It doesn't make news, but uh, like a a 12-hour train delay does. But there's something special and unique about that mode of travel that's different than the bus or the train or the car. And um, I think more people need to, to to be aware of that, that it's a different time, it's a different space. Uh, it's a different experience. It's a different product. So do you think I was being too harsh by invoking Ozzy Osbourne's crazy train at the outset of this great episode? It has its moments. Do you think there's still a romance to be found in Amtrak? Uh, I do. Yeah, I do. And so maybe John, you know, John Valentine, our wonderful engineer, maybe we can close out this here episode with some Pat Metheny or Love Train or some of the other, some a handful of the other thousands of songs written about the the late great romanticism of train travel. Uh, yes, indeed, uh, Amtrak has its problems, but Amtrak also has some great selling points. Uh, passenger rail writ large does in this country, and that people seem to want more of it. They want the trains to run on time. They are increasingly envious about high speed rail in Europe and Japan and China. And I predict that a lot is going to change in this because. 
This passivity cannot stand, to paraphrase uh, George Bush 41. Uh, I would like to thank you, Stevie Tepke and John Culbertson, for joining us on this wonderful segment, uh, pondering the, the wherefore the crazy train of Amtrak. Thank you, Robin. It's great being here. Thanks a lot. It was fun. And uh, we, we shall take a train together. Uh, assuming it runs on time. Uh, I am Robin Farzad. You're listening to Full Disclosure. We are on Stitcher, SoundCloud, WRIR, uh, Wednesdays at 9 and Sunday mornings, and now on NPR One. So how you like these apples? We'll talk to you next week.